0: This is William Roy.
1: I'm Jake. Hey I'm Melonbread.
2: This is Burning Heron. This is Kevin Ham, and you're listening to the Green Box. Today we're talking about horror, a little segment on special trainings, what else you can do with those, and a really interesting idea called Playing to Lift. Enjoy! So,
0: tonight on The Green Box, we are going to talk about horror and how to run scary games.
3: Okay, how do you do that without it being a big waste of time that ends up going nowhere because all of the atmosphere and tone and all the other stuff that you waste all your time building up ends up disappearing anyways?
0: Wow, I feel called out. No, I...
3: I'm i saying this is the reason why I don't ever bother doing any of that stuff.
0: Personally I like running horror because I'm I'm a bastard GM and <laughs> you like seeing players suffer. Yes, yes, exactly. I like seeing I was trying to think of a way that I could say that without making myself sound like a, a horrible sadist, but I guess there's probably no way around it is there. One thing to keep in mind when doing horror, a uh, medium such as the RPGs is that you basically shouldn't ever count on your ability to do any kind of like film horror stuff because big scary things and like visual horror obviously doesn't work so well in the sort of theater of the mind because there's nothing to really look at. It's all it's all in your head, unless you're using minis, but then minis on a battle grid are very scary.
4: Yeah, I think that's been mentioned on RPPR once or twice that just the nature of the game is you have to go for a more intellectual sort of horror.
0: Well, not even intellectual sort of horror. What I mean is that, um, consider this, right? We are apex predators. We have binocular vision. We mostly perceive the world through sight. We rely on sight. We can see something, we're not afraid of it. If we can't see something, then we're afraid of it, because if you can't see it, you don't know where it is, and that's when the prey instinct kicks in. That sort of taps into the flight or flight. So, most of the time when I do horror, I rely very, very heavily on audio cues, sound effects, music, that sort of thing. One trick that I like to do uh, is to just quietly play a sound effect and just pretend like nothing happened. There's a lot to be said for audio and the efficacy of audio in creating a horror atmosphere. That is something you can take from horror
4: movies, to add to your game because the new movie hereditary uh does a lot with sort of the kind of the clucking tick one of the characters has
0: have not seen it but i i want to see it very much uh,
4: i think you will like it just because there's a very distinct sound effect that gets used multiple times and i'm thinking also the witch instead of using traditional musical instruments they built a, a completely new machine that would just produce horrifying noises. And they used that to... Wow. Yeah, they used that to score the film.
0: That's cool. Yeah,
4: they literally called
0: it the Nightmare Machine. I want to look this up. I
4: will. There is a
0: couple of youtube videos about it so i will why don't we leave a link in the description for our listeners yes definitely all right um yeah link below in the description but so i haven't seen her that's very uh one horror film that i did see recently that does actually kind of does this kind of thing where it avoids using visual stuff and just kind of does things that are a little bit weird and then also audio cues is the ritual which i highly recommend good film is that the one on netflix possibly yeah yes it's on netflix it's about the four four british guys go hiking in in the woods and it's awful Notable as being a horror film where the scene was broad daylight and I was fucking terrified. Nice. Forest of Scary.
3: Now, what's a good horror scenario in Delta Green? Because I think that Delta Green has... Oh,
0: actually, we spoke earlier about Viscid. Um, Heron, was it you who's, who used the phrase um, conspiracy horror, I think?
4: Yes, I think it was, because that is something... I guess in new Delta Green without Majestic 12, you don't really get that sensation that there is a secret enemy fighting against you in addition to whatever mythos horror you're dealing with and that is something viscid does really well
0: without going too much inside baseball can you elucidate the inciting event
4: for viscid is that a geneticist is found dead outside his yard Uh, in a very strange way, a way that triggers local police into calling the FBI and the CDC for a possible biohazard. He has a laboratory in his garage, a very serious laboratory, like the kind people use for studying Ebola and things like that. And the operation essentially splits off into two different plot lines. There's one where you try to track down what killed him and what he was working on in the lab, and then one where you try to figure out why did he have a lab in his garage in the first place. And following that second one, you tend to discover a lot of shell corporations funneling money around. Uh, When you try to talk to a private detective who had been keeping eyes on him, she suddenly gets shot in the neck while we were walking up to her, at least in our game. And you definitely get the sense that there are very powerful people funding this scientist and now they are trying to clean their tracks just as fast as you are trying to follow those tracks.
0: Spoilers for Viscuit, by the way. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, Melon, you asked, what's a good horror scenario? As you are well aware, I am a big fan of Night Floors, but that's because uh, Night Floors and uh, most of the King and Yellow stuff essentially amounts to giving the handler an excuse to gaslight the players. How do
3: you make the King and Yellow good and still interesting after you run Night Floors?
0: That is a good question. Because
3: I have tried to think of things to do after running my Night Floors analog with that setting, and everything I could think of is just the same thing, again.
0: Well, that's, that's rather fitting of, of uh, the Haster Mythos, though, isn't it?
3: Yeah, but if you recall, I don't care about realism, I care about fun.
0: One thing that I've done, having run night floors and having had some players with agents who have been exposed to the has- to the yellow sign and the Haster Mythos, is I have just inserted little nods to Carcosa here and there. there. There was one game where one agent couldn't fall asleep because they had sleep disorder, so I told them you lie awake in-, in your hotel bed and you notice that the pattern of the stucco on the ceiling is like in the shape of the yellow sign or something. Just little, little nods like that. Um, and then finally culminating in somebody gets rubber banded back into Carcosa and then maybe their pals get a postcard and they had to go rescue him or something. And then it just cascades from there.
3: But isn't the Carcosa rescue experience itself just a recycled version of the last snare where they went to Carcosa?
0: Uh, kind of. Except, well, yeah, not necessarily. Um, Night Flores, for instance, it's not actually possible to rescue Abigail right, because she's she's gone. Whereas the book that Night Flores was in, Countdown? Yes. Has in it suggestions on how to create a scenario where the agents rescue one of their comrades from Carcosa, in which it is actually possible to do so. I guess the way that I would make Carcosa sort of different, I guess the easiest way is is to just not use it for the same premise. Like, I've done Night Floors. Melon you wrote Autark Sunrise. Great scenario. Also uses Carcosa. Um, I think those two scenarios are... No, you're welcome. I think those two scenarios are sufficiently different that you could probably run them fairly closely together, and it wouldn't be too samey.
3: I disagree. I think that most of the content that I put in that scenario was taken from Night Floors or from the original document that Night Floors was in.
0: It's interesting you say that, because I was comparing them side by side, and I actually noticed many differences in the way that Autark Sunrise presents Carcosa and navigation and stuff, and uh, the way that it's done in Night Floors and all... Well, not really Night Floors, because Night Floors is sort of intended to end before anyone goes to Carcosa, Um, but in the way in which navigating Kirkosa is described in Countdown. Autark Sunrise did it very differently.
3: I guess that's true, because in the other one it was about failing sand tests to get better at moving around.
0: Yes, which I'm sure you and I will both agree is kind of dumb.
3: It's not necessarily thematically bad, but mechanically it just equates to do this repetitive task over and over again until you get what you need.
0: To bring it back to Melon's original question then, what's a good horror scenario? Um, music from a Darkened Room is a great horror scenario. It is It is a classic horror trope in the haunted house Uh, and it also has a lot of fun mechanical tricks that the handler can use to directly interact with and mess with the agents that that they can not in a lot of other scenarios
4: having only ever read it and not run or played it it certainly seems like the impetus for that scenario is stage one get the players listening to a bunch of weird rumors and stories about the house step two, get them in the house
0: to screw with their minds. Melon, do you have any thoughts on Music for Dark and I
4: think that you already
3: know the answer to this, but for our wonderful viewers, I will tell them that viewers, this is a scenario that has a really strong atmosphere and a really cool set piece, which is the house itself. It suffers greatly in the Game design department because the way to move forward in the scenario is to tell an NPC to go play Antiques Roadshow. So everything else that the players do is a waste of time and contributes nothing. So all the talking to the old people is 100% a waste of time. The exploring the house is really cool, but is a waste of time. The talking to the parapsychologist is a waste of time. Although I actually don't mind that, I think he's a fun scenario element. But overall, making a scenario that is solved by an NPC off screen is bad game design. And I think that this is a very easy scenario to fix. The solution is you take the ghost table, which contains the deus ex machina that's used to solve the adventure. And that's the other thing I don't like is it's a, you must cast this spell to, to ride, basically. But all you have to do is take that ghost table and put it in the house. And it can be like the players have to either spend this number of hours searching and you know they can reduce the amount of time with successful search rolls, or the table appears when the house has spent a certain amount of willpower or power to try and possess the players, so when it weakens itself by fucking with them.
0: I like that second option a lot, uh, because then the more the handler uses the house's powers to directly fuck with the players and or try to kill them, the better chance they have of, of solving the mystery, really.
4: So, like I said, I haven't run the scenario or played it, I've just read it, but I feel like I have an idea what Detwiller was going for when he made the solution so obscure and hard to achieve, which is that you're not supposed to solve it, you're just supposed to... Go into the house and get the shit kicked out of you until you die, leave, or you just get blind-ass lucky and keep trying anything until you eventually get the table. Like, I think that is probably what makes it a horror scenario, is that there's not a clear chain of logic. You really just have to get lucky to figure out how to solve the problem for good.
0: Melanie, you were going to run Alice uh, Head Mountain at one point, weren't you? Or was I going to run that?
4: I, I think you were going to run it. I, You
3: thought that I was going to run uh, the other one, um, New Age, which is not really a horror scenario. It's more like a grindhouse scenario. Anyways, Owl, I think Owl's Head Mountain is an alright horror scenario. I think it's got a cool setting. I think it has a cool loop of you wander around in the, the woods and you find the the creepy old man and then you get lured into a confrontation with the real creature. I think that it also suffers from too much have the NPCs do everything-itis because the ultimate goal of that scenario is to confirm that there's indeed a big monster in the woods so that you can call off the investigation. And I think that given... Confirmed. Yeah, given that this is Delta Green, if you tell the players that, guess what they're going to say immediately. Like, we know given this briefing and given this is a horror RPG, this is exactly what's going to happen.
0: We know, given the premise of this game, that there is a big scary monster on Alice Head Mountain. Yes. Mission over, let's all go home.
3: And also there was a bunch of stuff in that module that always puzzled me about the creature having very specific bullshit damage resistances, which is fine because that's how everything in old Call of Duty worked. So the Dark Young has this thing where it's for whatever reason immune to artillery and explosives, and They make a whole point of saying that when Delta Green tries to kill it, they use like a light mortar and a grenade launcher and all that stuff and it doesn't work. And it seems extremely arbitrary that you can kill it with bullets. Because the thing is, is that it, it does, it takes one damage per bullet, but that's actually not that bad because in old Call of Cthulhu, you measured a burst of automatic weapons fire on a per bullet basis. So if you shot something with a machine gun, it took, it could take anywhere between 10 and 20 damage, even if it only took one damage per bullet. But I think that not Head Mountain uh, could easily be spun into an alright scenario, and I think that the best way to kill the Dark Young in any DG scenario is and, I th- and I w- I'm, I'm hoping that there's a published module out here that does someone that does this, and if not, there needs to be one. Drone strike on US soil? I was going to say shoot it with uh, chemical defoliant, like pour Agent Orange on it. Oh, nice. Because That, I think, would be pretty hype, and would be a creative solution that is also fun.
0: Yeah, no, I I really like that.
3: So that scenario is, I think, an alright one. I haven't run it, so I can't talk about how well it works in practice.
0: Lover in the Ice, also good. Well that's more that Lover in the Ice is more what I would classify as body horror, which is difficult to do in tabletop RPGs, but it does it very well.
3: I still think that the monster in that is a bargain basement xenomorph.
0: I mean it is, but I mean the xenomorph is also body horror.
3: That's true. I think overall that one is uh, closer to what I described earlier as the grindhouse tone of old Delta Green,
0: which... Oh, I definitely agree.
3: I don't necessarily mind. I think that's generally better. I I think
0: that's very much in, in the scenario's favor.
3: Yeah. I think the main problem with that one is that it rapidly becomes chase down the monster and roll your biggest weapon skill against it, and then possibly burn the structure that it's inside. I think that's fine, but it ties into that larger conversation that we keep having about how to make it so that everything is not just a bug hunt. Heron, what about you? What do you think is a good horror scenario?
4: I was going to say, I guess, Ex Oblivione. Oh, I'm not actually familiar with that one. Oh, that one's on Dennis's Patreon, and it's hard to talk about without spoiling a lot of things. I'm I'm curious to see how how Mellon would react.
0: Spoilers for this scenario, then, I guess.
4: (laughs) Yeah, I'm curious to see how Mellon would react to it, because it's basically a really horrific murder has taken place in Yuma, Arizona, And the Trail of Clues eventually leads the players back to the original YY2 facility where all the Deep Ones were kept after Innsmouth. And the idea is that the ghost of a Deep One has taken over a nearby town and is forcing them to just kill people uh, as punishment for what they did to it and its family back in the 1920s. And the culmination of the scenario is essentially that by investigating these murders, the players fall into a trap, and everyone in this little town starts trying to kill them, and they have to escape.
3: So by investigating it, you are disadvantaged, and by approaching it with a kill-everything mindset, you are advantaged.
4: Oh, here we go. Uh, Not really, because it says it says that it's not mindless, so until it gives the order to kill everybody, everybody is just living their normal lives. Like, everybody is licensed for the weapons they carry if you go into somebody's home and find all their guns.
3: So you are rewarded for killing everyone even when there's no reason to? I mean,
4: yes, your FBI agent slash Marine slash whatever. If they're just executing people in the street, I'm sure they will face no consequences for that.
3: I mean, I'm also sure of that given federal law enforcement in this country.
4: That sounds like a segment I would like to talk about someday, to be honest. The actual shit law enforcement can get away with, as opposed to the shit you let your players get away with that doesn't really create that much drama.
3: Now, that is a few scenarios I think that we think each exemplify good features of. Well, it's, it's funny because we were talking about horror, but it also just turned into general scenario design, which is what a lot of our conversations end up being. So if we want to go back to talking about like a horror scenario or things of that nature. Because I've said before that I'm not someone who typically cares to do that sort of thing in Delta Green, so I don't know that much about making a well-designed scenario that has that effect. I think that people have said that there was stuff that they found unsettling, but that was mostly just ancillary about the things that I write.
0: Well, there's unsettling and there's horror, right? Maybe. Yeah,
4: there is some nuance between things like eerie, spooky... Uh, even terror and horror have very different definitions when you can get into the nitty gritty.
0: I don't know about um, if this applies to writing scenarios, but certainly when running a scenario, tension helps to enhance that atmosphere. You know, one thing that I do when when I'm, I'm running a game and we get we're getting into the scary bits is I I will sort of up the frequency with which I prompt players for responses. I, I'll cut people off when they start chatting and say and. You know, throw something new at them or throw some little detail at them or think fast. What do you do? I routinely do this, like, especially in the middle of combat with a scary Mythos monster, is, is somebody will start saying, Oh, well, wait, maybe I should. And then I'll cut them off and say, You don't have time to think. What do you do? What do you do? What do you do? Try and sort of, I guess, force that kind of flight or fight uh, response loop by just, like, being a pain in the ass, if I'm being honest.
4: I think that works. I think if you're in combat with a Mythos monster, even if you uh, critically succeed your Saiyan test and you're not. Having your entire worldview shaken it's still you're still dealing with adrenaline and the general stress of combat so you've got to react if you want to be really tactical that's for what's going on in other people's turns
0: one other link i'll leave in the description is um also on on dennis's patreon um he put up an article about how he runs delta green as a handler and uh, he has some he has some i think some some really good advice in there for maintaining that sort of tone and pacing when when things go sideways and how to how to keep your your agents on their toes and feeling the pressure.
4: I think probably as much as writing the scenario, there are things you can do when running a scenario to make it scarier. Uh What we've talked about with audio design, keeping players on your toes and
0: forcing them to react. Good use of music, too. Um, Instrumental stuff. Really, really good. Uh, be careful not to use anything iconic, though, because one problem that I have had... Fairly consistently is if I if I borrow something from an, from like a, a well known or even semi well known media. There's one specific player who, in the middle of my descriptions of the scene, will will interrupt and go, "Oh, what's this music from? I recognize it." So my advice to handlers who want to play with music to set mode is to try and avoid things that your players have heard, have probably heard already. Oh, um, descriptions too. Less is definitely more. So don't just des- if you're describing. <laughs> you're describing a shoggoth don't describe it like it's a big blackish gray blob of you know etc just describe very 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 specific very very small details and make them details that are as unrelated to each other as possible and let your players kind of fill in the blanks so if i was describing a shoggoth i might be like Oh, it's 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 making this high pitched piping noise, and uh and you're assaulted by a smell like like rotting flesh and and sewage. Describe like writhing and bubbling and little eyes and little mouths and just, just details like that. Less is more. Leave as much vague and indeterminate as possible when you're describing unsettling bits. Especially mythos bits. So let your players fill in the details of the scary bits, and it will be more effective than if you describe them in full detail.
4: I would just reach back to what you said earlier about gaslighting your players. As terrible as that sounds, that can be a great way to just build horror, too. Like, make the world feel like it's not waiting for the players to react. Just little things you can do to kind of screw with their perceptions or things that they felt were true
0: about the world that suddenly are not. It's also really fun to do as the handler.
4: Yeah, it's really fun for the handler, and for the right player, it is also really fun. And even if you're sitting at the table listening to it, it does a lot to set the tone. Something where someone has seen the O sign, and they start talking to a character no one else can see.
3: I'm going to say that anything that involves dreams or hallucinations or any of that stuff requires so much overhead because you have to constantly be adjudicating who sees what every every cuz every time it's it's there's some guys like oh I'm going to going to walk up the stairs and everyone else like oh I will also walk up the stairs and then you got to start saying well no you see the stairs you see the empty wall section of wall there and you have to do it every time anything happens and it's such a such a drain on on anything happening and that's why I don't do it and i think that that feeds into a larger thing generally about well, you keep saying about how much fun the, the gaslighting of the players is. I think that the real danger there is that they might just assume you fucked up. And the thing is, in an RPG world, usually, if, if something is different from A to B, it's usually because the GM just forgot what the setting detail was.
4: I mean, I think you're underestimating the buy-in players are willing to give you if they're knowingly playing a horror game.
0: I think Melon has a good point, actually. Uh, although, if... Uh, if that ever happened at my table, I would consider that a victory. As a handler, I could do a lot with that. Actually, there's a lot that I could use about that. Uh, with respect to what you were saying, Melon, one technique that I use um, to avoid that the problem of adjudicating who sees what is to really only fuck with one player at a time and uh, bring the entire rest of the table in on it. So, like, if I, got ta- if I got four people at my table, I'll ask one of them to leave the room, and then to the other three, once he's gone, I'll say, alright, so, I want you all to pretend there's another character that's just been with us the entire time, and it's all completely normal to you.
3: Yeah, it's the old uh, gumshoe sanity mechanics. Exactly,
0: yeah, Gum- uh, um, Trail of Cthulhu has some excellent suggestions for exactly that, for, like, pretending characters have always been there that have just suddenly shown up, or pick a word, like, squirrel, and just pretend that that word doesn't exist little things like that and then uh so you mess with one person and you also neatly solve the problem of having to adjudicate what everyone else sees because the rest of the table is already in on the joke
1: chief you
3: wanted to talk about special skills right
1: yeah, it's special trainings. You know, that's uh, the thing I'm all about. I think it's a great way to supplement and complement a bunch of the characters' traits and skills that they, they come with. Because to me, sometimes it feels like uh, certain professions are lacking so I had ideas for different special trainings, because I think the book gives only, like, four examples of special trainings, and that's just simply not enough for me.
2: I know, I've looked at that as, an, like, if I have a character who doesn't really need to get sanity, or to, I don't want to do the cliche, go to, go to therapy, I'm like, oh, I could get a special training. I look in the back, and I'm like, all of these seem worthless.
1: Yeah, it's like what scuba diving, rappelling, skydiving. Uh those are just the things that, that are listed.
4: I was gonna say there's lock picking, which would be basically you can use your decks to pick a lock rather than using the craft locksmith skill, which might be useful if you if you don't have a class that starts with craft skills.
1: Right, yeah just give that to like the thief or whatever you know the criminal uh, profession
4: the
3: problem is that there's a mechanically defined way to acquire special trainings through the vignette system there is never there is never one to figure out what your character would start with there are some implications because and I here's a bullshit rule for you the the book implies that you need special training to throw a grenade that a normal a normal <laughs> human being doesn't know how to pick up a ball and throw it
1: I, well, there's some soldiers that don't know how to throw grenades, I'll tell you that right it's now. It's true.
3: You probably should be should make sure that there is an object between you and the grenade when it goes off, because technically the radius is larger than you can throw. But more to the point, we can infer from that that probably the professions that start with grenades in their gear, like the special operator, would have that special training. But it's never described in the rules how... You determine who would start with what.
1: Well, this is just one of those times where you, as the GM, as the handler, have to take charge of your own game and your players, and say, "Hey, look, I want you guys to succeed. I want you guys to be able to do things. What other things besides what's listed in the rulebook should your character be able uh, to reasonably do?" So, to that end, uh, I had a couple. I think I'd mentioned that uh, I would like to see implemented a couple times. So you could use them to kind of complement some of the skills that exist without having to uh, buy into them. Um, for example, first aid is a skill. You could give someone, uh, like all law enforcement are CPR certified. So you could have CPR as a special training. I'm not sure what skill you'd want it to uh, base off of. I think of. that
3: most special training should be tied to... Intelligence,
1: right? Yeah, and uh, could, uh, you could recognize, hey, wait a minute, this person's uh, facing cardiac arrest. I should apply CPR. Good thing my uh, my int times five allows me to do CPR because that's what my training is.
3: I mean, technically, CPR would probably be con or strength or something, but I am always err on the side of put more things under intelligence because int is probably the skill that does the least in Delta Green. I guess, I, guess I, I understand that you know Delta Green is not a game about mechanical character optimization, but I do think that we've had this discussion before about how characters that are supposed to be more thinking-based tend to get punished because so many scenarios privilege the ability to shoot things over the ability to solve the puzzle.
1: Right, to that end, I'd also say, this might be blasphemy to some, take away the foreign language skill. Uh, make it special trainings. Give classes such as the anthropologist or the historian. Give them some. Uh, give them some foreign languages for free, and let them put those points into other things. That's that's all I have to say about uh, foreign languages. I'm really not satisfied with that as a skill. So how
4: would that interact with one of the example special trainings you've talked about before was Spanish for law enforcement? Which, from the sound of it, would be functionally, like, I guess, 10 points in Spanish as it exists now. Let
1: me see your hands.
4: Yeah, a couple of simple phrases you can just say to someone in an emergency situation, even if you can't hold a conversation.
1: Uh, what's your name? You know, uh, where'd the bad guy go? Did he have a gun? Uh, those sort of basic...
2: Where is the library, you know? Uh,
1: que hora es. Uh, yeah, it's Spanish for law enforcement. That's another pretty decent skill you could give somebody. If you don't want to give them a full language... Uh give them that and you know whether or not they want to use it to translate some ancient eldritch text uh leave that up to them. they're probably not uh those are all the ones that i was just able to come up with off the top of my head did you guys have any suggestions
2: now, i like the idea of a special training supplementing your character in some way or allowing you to take one special training that gives you access to a suite of skills maybe at a lower role so you take some sort of special training you take it at say 60 and unless you do four three or four different things at 40 i don't have any good mechanical examples but kind of like a skill set taken as one unless you do a few more things
1: that's, that's certainly not a bad way to phrase it
3: i think that However you handle it, it should be something that does not add a substantial amount of mechanical complexity. Yes, for sure. So I think that languages as special trainings is something I generally support because I think the best game, the best games that handle languages are games that are like... Uh, I've I I've, I've talked to say nasty things about Gumshoe, but I think Gumshoe does it well, where one point in the language skills gets you mastery of a language. I think that there are other games that do this too. Like, I think Pathfinder and maybe 5th Edition do it. I think 5th might also do it, where each point in linguistics gets you mastery of additional language. Which is really nice. Yeah, I think that's a smart way to handle it.
1: Um, Another special training I had was uh, basic hazmat safety. That could be a pretty decent special training. Uh, If you think about it, it relates to science, chemistry, other various science things. You know, you might be able to use it to tell the difference between uh, acids, bases, how to put out a fire, uh, those sort of things.
2: That's nice because it might also, there might be a a case where the clue is available. If somebody has a chemistry of 60, and if they're a chemist, they'll get like some deep clue about it. But if they have basic hazmat at 40, maybe they can at least get like, hey, this stuff reacts with the air uh, and is, you don't want to breathe it which isn't the full clue but it might get you somewhere into that investigation
1: yeah, it won't get you killed. I mean, uh, we could just look down the skill list and almost come up with a couple of special trainings. Just hang on, let me do that real fast.
2: I guess one of the issues of special training is again the way you acquire them is after an operation. So either you survived that operation where you needed one, and but you survived it, so you really didn't need it, or you've no way to know what the next operation is going to need. So I still find it, unless you're just given them or, or earn them at a set rate or something, there's very still I think very little reason to take special trainings. And if I'm gonna, if I'm a handler, I'm gonna do an operation where you have to. Set fast rope i'm gonna say like for the first week of the operation like you guys get trained in how to have a fast rope like because it's necessary for this operation to happen so i still am not sure what the value of some trainees is in general i don't i don't see much use even with these new cool new ones i can't think of when i would ever take one aside from flavor
1: yeah it just uh helps with some basic role playing sometimes uh pharmacy uh, another good one Uh, Law enforcement get, For example, we had a uh, DEA guy come into our roll call one day and give us uh, fentanyl awareness training. So, you know, uh, we're also kind of up on recognizing what prescription drugs are and how to identify them, how to handle them safely. Uh, You could have some sort of drug recognition as a special training.
3: Yeah, or uh, animal handling. Right, is a big one.
1: Right, animal handling is is another. Most good one.
3: games do most games if they do animal handling, they do it as a a skill, and then big surprise, no one puts points in animal handling. Because why would you put points in animal handling?
1: Yeah, in Delta Green, that's just the ride skill, which starts out at ten percent for everybody. But I uh, I can't even think of a single character i've ever made well no i take that back the one time we did that western game i had a character that had a ride skill yeah
3: i made a character for an m epic game who was a mountie oh of course and mounties don't i think typically because a mountie is like a federal agent so they're not exactly going and patrolling the frontier on horseback but i figured it was like the one time i was gonna ever use that
1: Oh, okay. Another one. Uh, SEER school. What is, uh, I don't know, help me out here. The acronym for SEER was survive, evade,
2: rescue, evade. I don't know. I was in the Coast Guard, man. I wouldn't even I run through the jungle.
3: I do feel like
1: some of these items
3: are stuff that would just be covered by regular in-game skills. Because that's right. just sounds survival, like just,
1: evasion, resistance, and escape.
3: That just sounds like the survival skill. Because I understand that, that that's like the SEER, that's that's like, uh,
1: it's for down pilots. Yeah, I guess if you have military science, air or uh, pilots,
3: pilots already in this game already get survive and navigate.
1: Right. Yeah, I guess maybe Seer is not a great suggestion then.
3: But you know, examine these possibilities.
1: Well, I like I said, I'd encourage people to uh, put more special trainings in, take charge of your game table, give people uh, I don't know four special trainings, just let them come up with things on their own. Because it's it's fun. It adds to the character and it adds to the ultimate goal of the game, which is getting the players from point A to the finale.
4: Well,
3: that I think might be a philosophical difference that some people have. Because
1: oh, that's that's my personal philosophy. Yeah,
3: that may. I mean, I understand that. I to phrase that in maybe a way that is less um, controversial. It keep it keeps things moving. It means that you aren't constantly getting hung up on. We can't walk down this street because we don't have the skill walk down the street. Stuff like that.
1: Yeah, it uh, stops dead ends from occurring.
4: So, a while ago, there was a blog post on Pelgrane Press's website where someone was talking about playing to lift. And the basic concept of playing to lift is that you kind of set out the personality traits of your character that you want to emphasize and then other people at the table will also emphasize those traits or react to you in a way that builds up those traits so for the really bookish professor maybe people are trying people at the table are trying to wave and get you to pay attention to them over the book you're reading uh for a really big muscly fighter people are kind of shrinking back from you and they're telling you to cool it, like not to, not to let your head get the best of you. Like he's not worth it.
3: (laughs) Get somebody, get this hothead out of here.
4: And so it was really interesting because you could build, uh, everybody at the table is doing it for each other and it kind of adds character.
2: So if I, if I understand correctly, so when you do the intros go on the table, Hey, I'm agent so-and-so is that when you kind of add a character, mention something about your character, you'd like others to play up. Is that,
4: Yeah, exactly. You would say like he's kind of like my CIA agent is kind of a sneaky dude who doesn't let anybody get close. Like it said, my fighter is kinda quick to feel insulted and so don't look at him funny.
3: And I wonder now if if the players are already doing that, which I think is an interesting idea and I think it could be a big a big boost to making the characters really come alive. If the players are doing that for each other, maybe they should if they were to start doing that for the NPCs and the NPCs were to start, start doing that to them, that would be a big step towards kind of activating the game world.
4: Yeah, I think that's a good idea.
3: I think that it would require basically everyone, the GM for all the NPCs and the players for all their characters, to have some kind of quick reference for what the external reaction to the character is like, because that is where I see this falling apart, is anything that requires the whole table to have an awareness of, each it's like it's like you know you ever play a game that has a lot of negative traits in it that you can take for points or whatever.
0: You mean Eclipse Face?
3: Eclipse Face is an example, but GURPS is the one that people usually bring up here, where you can kind of load a character down for negative trait with negative traits, and if you really wanna be a dick about it, there's no way the GM is gonna remember them all and gonna remember when they all come up. And it's I think I think even disorders in Delta Green are kinda like that, where the GM is not gonna remember which characters have mind polio, which characters have Know schizophrenia, which characters have uh, PTSD, and so it's on the the onus is on the players to kind of bring that out, and I and I think that anything like that where it requires one person to have a mastery of information about each character can kind of hit a stumbling block there. So, what are ways that we can play to lift in a way that minimizes the amount of information necessary for everyone
2: to to hold in their head? So, it's one thing when I played when I do D and D. And this is this started out purely as a way for me to be lazier. I didn't want to remember to give inspiration points. I got enough crap going on at the table. So I gave everybody an inspiration token. And I said, you can't use this. You have to give this to another player when they do something cool. And the side effect was all my players were looking for that cool moment. Because they were like, if I can give that guy a cool moment, then he's going to recognize one of my cool moments. We're both going to benefit from this. And I got to sit back and be like, you guys are keep track of all this stuff. So you could do it. I really like that as a mechanic. You could almost give every DG player like a willpower or even a sanity token and be like, look, when someone does something really good, give them a sanity point. And you can't you can't take it for yourself. you got to give it away. But here's the mechanical benefit to it. That might be a way to do it. And that might work better in person.
3: I think that Burning Wheel slash Mouse Guard had something like that. And Will, I know that you ran Eclipse Phase that way. I did? Yeah. The very first Eclipse Phase game you ever ran that I was in you had a a section at the end where you decided who to award the bonus XP to based on uh, popular demand.
4: It actually reminds me of Fiasco where once the scene is over, you can hand the white or black die to somebody else. At least the first half of Fiasco, I think.
2: Yeah, yeah, I see what you're saying. I think playing to lift might work, or or having it be easy to remember if you were playing in person, you could just have a little nameplate in front of everybody that says, I'm Bill, avalanche control specialist, you know, play up my blank, you know what I mean? And then as you're looking around, you see, like, oh, yeah, that guy's really bulky, I want to, or he's really scary, or whatever it is.
0: I like this for Delta Green, because then you could write your disorders on it, and then as you progress down the death spiral, you just write more and more and more on the name tag. Yeah,
3: yeah. That is a fun idea.
0: Yeah,
4: I think it has a lot of benefits. Not just players necessarily lifting each other in a positive way, but in a horror game, kind of playing up the negative aspects of their characters, like... A guy with intermittent explosive disorder. Everybody is telling him, use your indoor
2: voice. Or like, hey, why don't we go look over here? Uh, uh, you know, check ch- check this out. Instead of letting him see the, you know, something that might trigger his PTSD or his desire to get back there or something.
4: Yeah, or a guy with paranoia. No, you go first. We'll cover
3: you. This has me thinking about something that I think, Heron, it was you, it might have been somebody else wanted to talk about, but I would like to talk about because I just remembered it now is playing characters that are not necessarily the type of characters that you usually play. Because I find myself, all of my characters end up being a lawyer with a gun, regardless of whether their skill set or personality or anything about them is appropriate for that. They always end up getting in arguments over what they should be allowed to do with the NPCs, and then when the NPCs disagree, they kill them, and then so, claim it was self-defense with a straight face.
2: Wow, it's accurate. So, okay So, I mean, why... So you obviously know that that's an issue. Why don't you just stop doing it? Why do you do that all the time?
3: Uh, you're right. Never mind.
2: Section over. <laughs> well, all right, I'm trying to say this is, really is
0: the, the bully melon bread episode.
2: No, 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 All right. All right. Hang on. What I'm trying to say, the first step is recognize that you have this, like, that you play the same character over and over The first step
0: again. is admitting you have a problem. So
2: if you're already at that first step, that's big. So you should... I mean the the only advice I can give is to just force yourself to play a character that's wildly outside the comfort zone and just not do that. But the
3: problem is that every time I do that, I end up in back in that same mode. I just don't have the appropriate skill set to make my wishes a reality. So what can I do instead to get inside the headspace of this is you're an, you're an anthropologist or you're a coal miner or whoever you don't have the mechanical skill to. Or the credentials to do what's necessary in this scenario. Cause the reason that I often find myself doing it is that it's very frustrating for me when I see what needs to be done in the game world, but the character doesn't have the ability to translate that to reality. And so I'm kind of stuck waiting for someone else to either hit on it or uh, take the story in a different direction.
4: So what I'm hearing, and I'm going to present this in a way that doesn't shit on Melon. <laughs>
3: it's not uh, what I'm trying to do. No, go ahead. I, I, God knows I give you guys the business when I feel you deserve it.
4: It's true. So. It's in, So, a lot of your choices and characters is kind of, uh, it's about mechanical optimization or being able to use the systems effectively? Yep,
3: yeah, that's what a lawyer with a gun does.
4: Mm-hmm. So, I'm wondering if you kind of change the frame of reference and you think of, rather than the legal system, if there's a different system you can manipulate. <laughs> like um, science or history. Yeah, I'm remembering a previous character, Bo Bexeter, who was, uh... A computer specialist or a hacker, I believe.
3: Yeah, Bo Bextiar is the Uyghur computer scientist who works for Rand Corporation. A character who I based made up entirely based on a photograph of an extremely handsome terrorist after a bombing in Thailand.
0: <laughs> I and, Bo Bextier.
3: Yeah, and he had a he had the same problem. And the re, the sort of sort of the genesis of this of my thinking about this was actually a game that we played where. Bo couldn't do anything that he wanted because he didn't have the necessary skills. Like, his computer science skills were completely useless in that scenario because the answer was to kill everyone and break
2: everything. So, I have two potential uh, non-shooting on Melon solutions here, right? One is the way assisting works and Delta Greeners have the best skilled roles. So, if you have the idea but don't have the skill, but someone else in the group does, you instead of being like, Well, I want to do this and I can't, you can say, Hey, why don't you do this? Because it's a good idea. It may not always work, but that's one potential solution. The other one is, you know, if you talk to your GM ahead of time and you say, "Hey, uh, I tend to always play lawyers with the gun, and with this character, I'm trying not to do that." So give your give your handler, your GM's like the the ability to kind of counter that. Because normally I won't. If you say you want to do something and it's totally out of character in my head, I'm, I might be like, "Well, that's silly." But if you told me ahead of time, "Hey, if I say that, like like shoot it down," you know. With a little hey, you don't you don't really think you don't, you don't think that, or you don't think it's a good right idea. Or you don't even know what that is. If you give the GM the permission to kind of get into your character's head a little bit, he may help be able to help steer you away from the lawyer with the gun moments. Uh, so you can kind of collaborate instead of being adversaries.
0: Something else I would add is that um, if you if the player has an idea, and it's not an idea that the character has the skills to act on or even think of. You could, as an aside, say to a player who's running an agent does have those skills. Hey, uh, this, here's here's an idea that I just had. Not like you know, an in character. Because I mean, at the end of the day, we're, we're a bunch of people sitting around with pieces of paper in front of us that say we're what we're not.
2: Yeah, and, and I, I don't think any of us are super insane about in character, out of character chat. So just have the little out of character aside and make it work. But I mean, I, but I I've, do think, I've often know, had games where. Um, Right,
0: or I'm 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 running like a, a low a relatively low intelligence character and somebody else across the table is like a fucking wizard with twenty and but he's not, not the brightest crane of the box and they'll be like, Hey, what about this? This this is maybe something that you hadn't
2: thought of and i will be like, Oh yeah, that's a good idea. But I do think it, that bringing, if you want to play a character that's different than, you know, being up front with the GM ahead of time and saying, Hey, with my, my goal playing this character is not, not to fall into the trope or not to fall into this trope or to learn more about playing an anthropologist, so please you know you know help me help me keep this in line then you i mean you've already taken the biggest step towards trying not to play the same kind of character every time you know what i'm
4: saying i think will just gave me an idea for a, a fun way of playing to lift a low intelligence character rather than the character having just dumb ideas or not knowing what to do the character can come up with a good idea and then once they've explained it to the group they will kind of Comedically, put themselves down like, "Nah, that would never work."
3: I think that it's better for that. that that's good, but what I would do is they come up. They come up with it. Everyone tells them they're a fucking idiot, and then like two minutes later, the wizard has the same idea, and everyone's
2: like, "You're a genius." Yeah,
4: <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's that's how you have to play it. Is the wizard, somebody comes up with the exact same thing, and suddenly it's brilliant.
2: Or you know what? Same exact thing. Oh, what a great idea! Yes, yeah, exactly. That's good. That's. Uh.
3: And I think that that is what, when I when we talk about Plank to Lift, if we're going to go back to that, that's something that I wondered about is how it's different in a game like Delta Green versus a game like, uh, like D&D or like Star Wars. Because those games, the traits that you want to emphasize can be very much larger than life or things that would not... not I, I, I hate to use the term realistic or authentic, but it's a different... Set of expectations about what kind of characters
0: you're playing. Oh, I had a word for that. Good. No, he had the word. It's gone now. Verisimilitude. There you go. I even used that word in a previous episode. I thought this was an O'Leandol
4: style joke where the punchline just never comes. All
2: right. So what are so, so what are some traits that can be played to lift in a Delta Green uh for Delta Green characters? We've got the disorders.
3: That was something that we verified. So paranoia. Yeah, motivations are good.
0: In fact, motivations are really good because there are, there's a mechanic on the book for getting a will point to playing your motivations and everybody forgets about it. So I would say offload that to the players. Let the players award each other willpower points for playing to their motivations so that the handler doesn't have to remember, you know, five motivations for each character all the time.
4: There's also situations I'm thinking where your skills may not necessarily make you the optimal choice, but because of your profession, uh, you are a good choice for the situation. Like, let's say you need to consult with somebody in academia or you need to talk to the administration of a university. Your uh, professor or scientist or what have you may not have the highest uh, charisma or bureaucracy, but they probably know a little bit more about this specific case. So you could bring them along and the handler could make it easier, like lower the skill limits or just give them something without a role.
2: That's true. I, I was thinking something that might be interesting to 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 ask to be played to lift is a lot of times people tend to use their badges as is like the golden key, get an edge of free card. But you could say that like, hey, my character is super paranoid about getting outed as a federal agent or, or losing his badge. So anytime you know, so what I want you to play up is if there's a you know if I'm starting to badge my way through things, come up with like, hey, are you sure? Somebody might, somebody might see that, you know, that kind of thing, which might also give you a fun little mechanical. uh step step's not the right word there any further thoughts on playing to lift or uh, playing trying to get outside of comfort zone with the character
4: i would just say yeah going back to mel and bo bexeter if there's something that draws you to a specific kind of character don't necessarily you don't necessarily have to completely go against yourself but it might be interesting to reframe the things that appeal to you and see if you can find something appealing in a different character type
2: That's all we have for today, folks. Thank you for listening to the green box. I encourage you to check out the description for links to our subreddit and links to the Discord. We like to play Delta Green, we like to run Delta Green, and we hope to see you there sometime.